Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. December 7th, Earth 2, 1941, a world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. And welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. This is episode 57 of the show. My name is Michael Bailey, and with me today is Monorail Scott. <laughs> hey, how's it going? <laughs> you, you showed me that video. Yes. Where you introduced yourself as Monorail Scott, and I go, I'm using that in a show. That, that is actually, yeah, when I'm when I'm driving and when I spiel, I, I typically identify myself as Monorail Scott, yes. I, I was wondering <laughs> if that was like a Disney thing, or was that something you do? No, that's something I, I came up with myself. Okay. That's cool. No, I'm not making fun of you for it. I, I, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of hoping it would so. catch on that, you know. You know, one of these days that I'll, I'll see that, you know, I'll go to some Disney forum or something and, and see that in there where it catches on. But so far, I have no idea if, you know, trying to create my own my own identity, I guess you would say. But, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed. Why? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> no sense. Well, sir, get us right into the action this time out. <gasps> yes. No I'm... fiddlefuckery. I am looking forward to this one quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, going back to, to uh, last episode briefly, um, you know, we had that little snafu where 
you had thought that I was doing the synopsis for the last issue and you were doing this one, so you wrote one for this one. So, you know, feel free to join because you had, you had said that you had labored over it and had some funny bits. So feel free to, to throw some of those out as we go through this because I'm, I'm curious what you had come up with as well and what, what we might have that was uh, similar and what we have that's dissimilar or what I'm, you know, filling in the gaps, that sort of thing. So anyway... Like I say, really looking forward to this one because I like this issue and I, I like the uh, the premiere of a new character in this one. This is All Star Comics number tw- or excuse me, All Star Squadron rather number twenty three, the July nineteen eighty three cover dated issue. The original cover price sixty cents. <sighs> cover, yeah, I know. Cover by Jerry Ordway that reads Star Spangled Action. Sensation-studded adventure by Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway. The awesome origin of Amazing Man. Is he friend or the all-star's deadliest foe? And you can tell that he went, you know, Roy Thomas went to the uh, Stan Lee school. (laughs) I love it, though. I'm not knocking it. I actually like that quite a bit. This story is entitled When Fate Thy Measure Takes. I actually like that title quite a bit. Uh, writer on this, of course, uh, writer-editor is Roy Thomas, Jerry Ordway Penciler, Mike Macklin Inkler, Ink- yeah, Inkler, Inker, Mike Macklin Inkler, I can talk tonight, uh, Inker, uh, Gene D'Angelo Colorist, David Cody Weiss, and he needs to shorten that because it's way too long for just a letterer's name. He's a letterer. And this one does have a quotation. I think all of these have had quotations so far, and I don't know that we always read them or not, but I will read this one. It is, uh, while from a proud tower in the town, death looks gigantically down. I kind of like that one. And it's by uh, Edgar Allan Poe from The City in the Sea. Our tale begins with GL, Green Lantern, flying in, towing his pals, Liberty Bell, Commander Steel, and Johnny Quick in a power ring bubble to the Parisphere in Trilon at the former site of the 1939-40 New York World's Fair, now the headquarters of the All-Star Squadron, in order to think and plan their next moves. Liberty Bell, as chairwoman of the All-Star Squadron, is taking this whole thing pretty hard. They're, they're, what I'm referring to is their defeat last issue at the hands of uh, the Ultra-Humanite and her minions. And Johnny Quick attempts to console her, but when, he, uh, when she rather rebuffs him, he gets all pissed off and storms out. So Green Lantern offers to go after him, but Bell insists that they have bigger fish to fry, namely taking care of Ultra and company. Bell asks about the tarantula, and Steele tells that uh, he has returned to Manhattan, which prompts a, a weird thing that happens with GL that I want to talk about a little bit later. GL literally says, we don't need him. <laughs> and I was like, what? What an asshole. And he says, uh, he tells the gang that uh, he's got to go and check back in at his army barracks. Remember that all the uh, uh, all-star, or excuse me, the uh, JSA members are all in the uh, the armed forces at this point. So he's got to go check back in at his army barracks before Alan Scott winds up in some hot water. But then afterwards, he's going on an ultra hunt. Bell tags along to hitch a ride uh, to GL's radio station so that she can be on hand as newswoman Libby Lawrence in her secret identity to try to get the lowdown on Ultra's next moves. Commander Steele elects to stay, citing his desire to continue working on Electro, but as soon as his friends are gone, we get a really nice character piece that I enjoyed quite a bit in which, you know, we really see the inner anguish of, you know, this kind of like hero from the past, almost like a man out of time type of thing, you know, but this hero that, 
you know, he had the whole thing where he was a prisoner of war and all that. You know, he's now returned only to find that he really has nothing left whatsoever of his former life waiting for him. It's, it's actually pretty sad. It's, he's kind of a tragic hero in, in that aspect, and I like this moment that we got with him. Elsewhere, winging their way towards Washington, D.C., we've got Hawkman, Dr. Fate, and the Atom. And they almost collide head-on with a commercial aircraft. The pilot ducks out of the way at the last moment, but in doing so, he sends his plane into a dive that he can't recover from. So only the quick reflexes and remaining super strength of Dr. Fate save the flight and were treated to a great panel of Fate being all Superman and riding this falling plane. It's actually a really dynamic panel. And suddenly the good doctor reveals that his spider sense is acting up again and that strange things are afoot at his circle tower. See, it was supposed to be a Circle K reference there. I fucked it all up, but that's all right. We'll just keep moving forward. <laughs> so he and the Atom head off to Salem, Mass. to investigate, leaving Hawkman to continue to the nation's capital all by his lonesome. On the way, Fate recaps his his origin story for like the umpteenth time and why he eventually gave up wearing the uh, helm of Naboo in favor for his current half-helmeted look because he could feel a presence inside the helmet slowly supplanting his own identity. Arriving at Fate's tower... The heroes find Inza Nelson, Fate's wife, lying on the floor, knocked silly by an intruder. An intruder who is now in possession of Naboo's helmet. And a quick dash downstairs brings Fate and the Atom face-to-face with Amazing Man. Now, this is not Siegfried Horatio Hunch III. That's Amazing Man. This is (laughs) Amazing Man. (laughs) And there is a difference. So what's so frickin' amazing, you ask? Well, for starters, he's got one of the awesomest costumes in all of All-Star Squadron's illustrious run, in my opinion. But he can also make, like, the Absorbing Man and turn his body into any substance that he touches, which he uses to great effect in this issue and in this battle with our heroes as he assumes by turns the properties of bricks, gold, and wood in order to batter the <laughs> He's guys. got wood. He's got wood. <laughs> uh, but it's when he attempts to absorb the properties of the Helm of Naboo, quick acting by the Atom, catches Amazing Man in his vulnerable human state, and he is able to subdue the villain. He actually smashes his face into a wall. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was looking at that. It's just like, wow, yeah, face he, plant. Yeah, he takes him down pretty hard. So fate revives, and he places the unconscious Amazing Man's hand on the crystal of Naboo, which acts as this sort of like hypnotic command type of thing to make uh, their captive relate his secret origin. So it goes something like this. Amazing Man was born a poor black child. But unlike Steve Martin, he was a poor black. <laughs> yes, child. he was a poor black. T- yes, he was. <laughs> now, seriously though, he he was he was the son of sharecroppers, and his name is Will Everett. And his pride and hot temper kind of forced the relocation of his family to Detroit, where his uh, his father toiled by day to provide Will with the means to go to college and make something of his of himself. Will. Uh, gained further resolve after watching his parents struggle through the extreme hardships during the Great Depression. Eventually, Will became a world-class Olympic athlete, actually competing with and gaining notoriety alongside Jesse Owens 
at the uh, 1936 games in Berlin, much to the chagrin of kindly old Uncle Adolf. However, gold medals don't put food on the table, and Will soon found himself back in America, busting his ass much as his folks before him had had to do. And so one day, while sweeping up in the lab of a scientist named Curtis, uh, Everett was attacked by hoods who'd come a calling to pick up some of uh, Doc Curtis's gear. Will awoke to find himself dressed in a colorful costume and strapped to a lab table by a lady known only as Ultra. Ultra, recognizing Everett as a former Olympic champion, uh, champion rather, had big plans for the athlete. Plans that include zapping the fertilizer out of him with these freaky rays of hers until the generator blew up. But he didn't die. Instead, he emerged as a man made of metal, and he knocked the bejesus out of all of her goons, and uh, some of them tried to shoot at him. Deathbolt and Cyclotron step up to battle Amazing Man, but Ultra calls them off and instead offers Will Everett a business proposal. Needing money to support his struggling parents, Will reluctantly accepted. His mission? Steal for Ultra the magic helmet of Dr. Fate. So using his newfound powers, Amazing Man was able to sneak into Fate's tower, overpower Inza Nelson, and take the helmet. However, Amazing Man failed to take into account that while his ability allowed him to pass through the walls of Fate's magic tower by assuming the property of the bricks, he couldn't carry anything through with him. So he wasn't able to actually leave with the helmet, and thus he was so trapped when uh, Fate and the Atom arrived. Realizing that something big is happening and that all of these recent events and attacks are somehow connected and sensing that the Spectre is in need of the full powers of Dr. Fate, Kent Nelson, despite the protestations of his whiny-ass wife, Inza, downs, dons rather the helm of Naboo once more and with the Atom and the still unconscious Amazing Man in tow, sets out to find the embattled Spectre. And uh, we got a really nice, I got to flip to it real quick here, but we had a really nice, I thought, I, I like these kind of things, a really dramatic teaser for the next one. It just says, next issue, Ultra Strikes. Enter Batman and Robin, plus Brainwaves back in town. Or is he? So that was all-star squadron number 23 let me open my book here and i'll go over the uh historical notes that we've got here let's see what do we got on this one we got uh the title when fate thy measure takes minus the exclamation point is a quotation from the poem epigram by james russell lowell never heard of him Hawkman and Dr. Fate mentioned the extreme wartime housing shortage in Washington, D.C., already becoming a widely reported phenomenon even just a few weeks after Pearl Harbor. Dr. Fate relates his origin in six panels and reveals he had to cease wearing his original helmet because it was, quote-unquote, trying to take me over somehow. This occurred, he says, Right after the Justice Society adventure, the world's not ready to learn about yet. A foreshadowing of June 1941 events in which a year plus later would be related in All-Star Squadron Annual Number 3. Although Roy Thomas didn't have all the details of the story worked out yet, he already knew that in it he intended to deal with several things that occurred between All-Star Comics Number 7 and Number 8, such as the change in Fate's helmet and powers, Green Lantern stepping down after a super brief spell as JSA chairman and our man's abruptly leaving the team. 
The six-page Secret Origin of Amazing Man in the middle of the issue represents Rick Hoberg's first penciling on All-Star Squadron and was done to gain Jerry Ordway time as he, Mike uh, Macklin, and Roy Thomas began work on uh, the new series that was soon emerge as Infinity Inc. And I can't wait, dude. I'm- oh, yeah, I got the theme picked out. Oh, you do? Yes, I do. We'll talk oh, about it off air. You're going to have to tell me. You're going to have to tell You know what? That reminds me, and I'm sorry that I know this has nothing to do with uh, with the issue at hand. Um, I was listening to, you know, as you know, I'm catching up on, uh, it's funny because you're, I'm catching up on your shows. You're catching up on my shows, <laughs> but I was, I'm catching up on, uh, on from crisis to crisis and you guys got to panic in the sky and this music started to play and I was like, oh, that's awesome. And, 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 and it's the same time I had that thought, I was like, oh no, wait a minute. Cause that's exactly the music I wanted to use when we started to do our crisis coverage, but it was still, I'm sorry. no, no, it's, it was cool because I really liked that piece of music. It's from, um, what, what was the name of that? Justice League crisis Just, on two earths. Crisis on two earths. That was the name of it. I knew it was crisis something. I couldn't think of it, but yeah, I love the music to that. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Will Everett discovers the limitations of his powers by becoming one with the stones of Dr. Fate's Salem tower. He can pass through its walls, but he can't take the mage's helmet with him. I think I said that when Roy Thomas and Bill Everett, not related to Will Everett had room together in New York during much of 1965 through 67, the creator of the 1939 amazing man had given Roy Thomas his verbal blessing to develop a new hero of that name though it took the latter years to get around to it. Roy Thomas feared Stan Lee would feel it was too corny a name for a Marvel superhero. I'm glad he waited, because I like Amazing Man. Mm -hmm. Uh, The issue's letter page contains a letter from Justice Society co-creator Gardner F. Fox, giving his blessing to All-Star Squadron. He quotes All-American co-publisher M.C. Gaines as saying back in the 1940s, quote-unquote, don't give me Rembrandt, give me production. I like that. I think that's pretty cool. And I actually, I wanted to touch on a couple of the things that uh, I actually have pictures attached to them here. Um, the one here about uh, the Absorbing Man. It says, Stanley and Jack Kirby's, um, uh, uh, I wanted to say Amazing Man, Absorbing Man, had the same ability when introduced in Journey into Mystery number 114. Plus, he could assimilate the power of Thor or his hammer by touching them. And Roy Thomas says, hey, there are just so many superpowers to go around, right? Uh, you never noticed that Thor maybe had uh, just a little bit in common with the original Captain Marvel. Actually, I had noticed that in those early stories. Yeah, uh, Thor's switching back and forth from Don Blank to Thor was very reminiscent of uh, Billy Batson's transformations into to Captain Marvel. About the Olympics. This is a very special Olympics. This is... Uh, on Earth 2, Will Everett had shared glory at the 1936 Olympics with another uh, black man, Jesse Owens, as seen in Amazing Man Origin chapter in number 23. And it says, On our Earth, Jesse Owens, the son of sharecroppers and the grandson of slaves, demolished Hitler's ideas of using the Berlin Olympics to demonstrate the superiority of the so-called Aryan race. I think that's cool. Me too. And... What is this thing about? Okay, it's just about Fate's Helmet. And I think that's it for the notes on this one, unless you see anything in there that you think needs to... Nah. Okay. What you got on this one, Mike? I'm curious. 
Alrighty, uh, I'm gonna kind of use my my synopsis for some of these too. Sure. Um, Green Lantern carries Liberty Bell, Johnny Quick, and Commander Steel back to the Parasphere via a ring bubble, and uh, says, "Sorry, people. When my willpower gets weak, so does my ring ray." That's something you tell people once they're on sa- once they're safely <laughs> on the ground. Dumbass. Put me down, Put me down right now. <laughs> Uh, page, uh, page three, one, panel three, it looks like somebody was playing with modeling clay when they did, uh, Liberty Bell there because of the way her riding pants look. I mean, we got a nice shot of her ass, but it looks like somebody took their thumb and just stretched her leg out as if it was made of clay. It's very bizarre. <laughs> my, uh, my note here was... Quick runs off in a huff saying he'll find out what's going on as Johnny Chambers because Johnny Chambers is more awesome than anyone else on planet Earth, including Jesus and Captain Kirk. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but that's what I that's what I kind of took from it. Um, you really liked the melodramatic scene of Commander Steel recalling his origins. I called it a big old pity party. <laughs> oh, come on. It was. <laughs> Come on, that was now, good, that, but that would suck that you you get turned into essentially the 1940s version of of you know the six million dollar man. Go off to war, spend some time in a in a Nazi death camp, come back, and your mentor's dead. Your girlfriend's married somebody else. I mean, you know, he's, he's just having a shitty life right now. You know. Uh, the artwork is incredibly awesome throughout this entire issue. Page mm-hmm. five, Hawkman. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Fate just looks awesome throughout this entire book, no matter what he's doing. Uh, page six, uh, I, I'll, I'll say not even Superman could have done it better. That is a total Superman move mm-hmm. of him. But uh, guys, why don't you pay attention where you're fucking flying <laughs> so you don't like almost crash a passenger jet, you idiots. Uh, I had a similar thing in, in my uh, synopsis as you did. Fate on uh, on page six does remind us that he's not at full power because that's what Doctor Fate does in these issues. He 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 reminds us that he's not at at full power. Um, <laughs> page seven, I was I read this origin, you know, the, you know the retelling of the origin of, of Doctor Fate, and uh, his father Sven Nelson dies uh, of uh, poison gas, so Naboo makes. Uh, Kent invulnerable to everything but poison gas. <laughs> so Naboo was an asshole. <laughs> Seriously, it's like, you know that thing that killed your dad? Yeah, I can kill you too. Deal with it. Well, you know, I, I had a note here, and this is kind of where I thought you were going with that, but that's a great point. And we may have talked about this before, I can't remember, but it does it strike you as as even just the least bit odd that to my recollection, now granted, I am not horribly well versed on Doctor Fate. I mean, I haven't read a whole lot of Doctor Fate or anything, but I can't recall a story where I ever read Kent Nelson having the least bit of resentment about the fact that Naboo killed his father. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that tend to kind of piss you off just a little bit? And you know, he just kind of accepts. This guy being his Obi-Wan and training him in the mystic arts and everything, I'd be like, you son of a bitch, you killed my father. You know, I think I actually I think awesome superpowers. Well, you know, I I, I think that that actually 
may have helped uh, Dr. Fate's story a little bit and may, maybe would make him a little bit more of, a, of an interesting character to me personally if, okay, you get this exact same origin. You know, he, he kills his father. Then he decides to take the boy under his wing. He raises him up. He gives him all these awesome powers. And then after it's all said and done, Fate kills him. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely serious about that. I think that could have actually what you do with that. That's a great idea. Fate kills him, but Naboo's spirit gets trapped within the helmet. In the helmet, yeah. So that he's always there. Right. Yeah, that works. That works for me, at least. The um, page ten is just so awesome. The shot of Amazing Man in that in the center of the page, mm-hmm. and I'm with you. I love his costume. I absolutely love his costume. Mm-hmm. The uh, the fight with Amazing Man is pretty cool. I do like that. Page fourteen, Adam grabs onto him. Why doesn't he turn into a white guy? <laughs> I'm not saying that to be an asshole either. <laughs> That actually would have been hysterical. <laughs> Alrighty, we, we we get Amazing Man's origin, which I which I really like. I like the fact that he beat up his money grubbing landlord when he was a teenager. The art on page seventeen is really cool, especially that shot of Hitler, which sounds really weird, but it's not. The uh we get his origin of, of how he got his superpowers, and I liked that as well, because you get more characterization of how Cyclotron just doesn't want to be a part of this. And we get more of a how Death... Deathbolt? Uh, Deathbolt. Deathbolt. Why, why did I think that was wrong for a second? But uh, and, and how much of a douchebag he is. On page 20, though, um, you know... I like the fact, one, that Amazing Man helps him, not only because of his parents, but because Ultra calls him Mr. Effort. Right. And that it's like a, it's like a sign of respect, but he goes, okay, lady, if I, if, if I like the start and salary, I'm your man. No, Deathbolt says, I'm her man, and don't you ever forget it. So I started thinking about Deathbolt after that. I started really thinking about Deathbolt, and basically what we really didn't talk about last time is that Deathbolt was a killer that was being chased by the police. He was involved in a plane crash, and that's when Alter grabbed him. So I'm thinking that Deathbolt has been in and out of prison. And he's a pretty beefy guy, and not to put too fine a point on it, he seems like the guy in prison that would rape other guys. So this is why Ultra is so appealing to him. Because he's kind of into that, and he knows that she's a man, but she's in the body of a chick, so to him it's the best of both worlds. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. It's a, it's a, I think it's as valid a theory as anything else. It was just something I was thinking about. It's it's not something we need to dwell on for, for very long. I'm just saying that he's going to want to do her in the ass. Now... It has been revealed already in this, right, that that Ultra, that this is a new body for Ultra. That Ultra, mm-hmm. uh, the the origin of this version of Ultra ha- has been revealed already, right? So it wouldn't be yeah. spoiling anything. Yeah, that was that was last issue. That's what I thought. So why does Ultra 
not have like a Frankensteinian like scar all the way around his head where they like took the top of her head off for the dr- makeup. You know, the, yeah, I guess so. Really good makeup. Yeah, yeah, really good makeup. Uh, how did she survive the operation? Uh, I do like on page twenty-one that to make Amazing Man more of an appealing character, he didn't knock Inza out. She got knocked out by the uh, the Hootie the Owl action figure, Doctor Fate. I have a beef with that, as a matter of fact, and I'll, I will be getting to that. That's that's actually the stickiest wicket of my notes when the we get The stickiest wicket? Yep. Very good. Page 22, that last panel of Dr. Fate putting on his helmet. It's so awesome. Oh, God, it looks so cool. Dr. Fate is a great-looking character. And again, I say that because I had his superpowers figure. <laughs> Got him and Martian Manhunter, Easter of 1985. They were sitting in my basket with their file cards right behind them, proving that my parents paid attention to the crap I did with my toys. Because <laughs> they knew I cut out. Because I got, because it was, uh, no, 86. Easter of 86, because it was Christmas of 85 that I got all my superpowers toys. And I cut out, laboriously cut out all of the file cards on the back. Because somebody in Kenner was paying attention to what they were doing at Hasbro with G.I. Joe. And Transformers. Uh, I I would have loved an issue of, say, like, Brave and the Bold, which would be Dr. Fate and the Martian Manhunter versus the Easter Bunny. I would totally be down for that. I think this is the least whiny version of Inza Nelson that I have ever seen. <laughs> because you've read those Marty Pasco stories with the Walt Simonson art. Yeah. She is a whiny bitch throughout that entire but series. They, every story with her ends exactly the same with her blatting. I wish he wouldn't run off of me, dog. It's like, Jesus Christ, lady. That's that's kind of his deal, right? I mean, that's kind of what he does, okay? It seems like every uh, every Dr. <laughs> Fate story I've ever read that has Inza Nelson in it is exactly the same story with her. You know, please yeah, don't it, run off, Kent. Please don't leave me here in this creepy ass tower with no windows or doors all by myself. I'm sorry, but I must be, you know, Dr. Fate and go save the world and you stay here. And it's like, oh, if he really loved me. And she and it's like, Jesus Christ, you know, <laughs> just divorce the guy already or whatever, you know. She needs she gets, a hobby. She's she, like a she knitting gets the club. tower. Which just gets the tower off. divorce <laughs> because he's the only one that can let her in, so she can't even get into it, and he's just an asshole about it. Oh, really? You want your jewels? Fuck you. Okay. Uh, she gets the helmet of Naboo, but uh, no, the. I'd love to, that would be a great episode of remember divorce court from the eighties. Yeah, you know the overly dramatized, not like the you know people's court version of divorce court they have these days, where they would have it fully scripted and it would always be like whoever that judge was would be like, I find in the favor of the plaintiff because of adultery and douchebaggery. I would love <laughs> to see Kent and Insa Nelson on that version of divorce court. <laughs> Um, fate and the Adam, my, my final bit on the, uh, the, the synopsis though was fate and the Adam leave with amazing man and Inza cries. 
a lot. <laughs> though the artwork is good. I do love, though, the, the little coming up next time, Batman and Robin. Yes. Because that was one of the issues that I got from Beachhead Comics, number 24. And right. I think it's kind of cool that I got to do 18 and 24, because those were the two issues that I read back-to-back in the summer of 95 when I was going through those books. Uh-huh. Back before I became incredibly anal-retentive about wanting to get everything before I read it. I really need to get back into that frame of mind and just <laughs> fill in the gaps as I go. Right. <sighs> There's a lot of things I need to do. I loved this issue. I loved the cover. The cover is so cool. I just think... This is really like the high watermark of this series. I mean, there's some good stuff coming up. I don't know. I, it's in the rereading. It's going to be really hard to top this storyline. Mm-hmm. It really will. And like I said, there's some enjoyable stuff. I'm not talking about the tsunami issues, but uh, <laughs> but, but there's some enjoyable stuff, and there's some stuff in the uh, the the uh, late 30s and the 40s of this title that are really good, um, especially when they go to another Earth temporarily uh, with another band of freedom fighters. Right. Looking to side to side. Speaking of the freedom fighters and the JSA, did you know that the Secret Society of Supervillains series from the 70s plus their subsequent appearances in Justice League and the Cancel Comics Cavalcade number 2 and all that is now in a hardcover? No, really? Yes. Got, it's getting released uh, our time Wednesday. It's a $40 book, but it's got everything Secret Society of Supervillains, including unpublished stuff. I'll have to see if I can find that on, uh, on like, Amazon. Maybe we can oh, tie a link yeah. on, our, on our website or, or you know, on, uh, yeah, on the Two True Freaks website or something like that, because, yeah, I had no idea. That's awesome, because yeah, that's some good stuff. Mm-hmm. That really is. I, I've only read the first four issues, but I really enjoyed them. Yeah, really I really like enjoyed them a lot. A lot. But that's got? all I got. Oh, okay. Um, well, my first note, of course, is uh, I, I totally agree with you. Awesome cover. I like Amazing Man. And uh, I think one of the, the reasons that I really like him, you know, much like my, my affinity for uh, Death Bolts and, uh, and Cyclotron, is he has an awesome costume. And I was looking at this, trying to put my finger on it. Why exactly do I really think that this is a great costume? What is it specifically about this costume that really, really appeals to me. And I think it comes down to the fact it reminds me a hell of a lot of my favorite version of Krypton. It looks very Kryptonian. It looks like something like Jor-El would wear back in like the 50s version of, of Krypton or something like that. I just really like, you know, it, it's a it's a combination of like something from Krypton and something from like, you know, once again, you know, people in the in the 40s or 50s, projecting what they thought the future would be like mm-hmm. and how people would dress. This is a very futuristic, you know, space outfit type of thing, you know, like science fiction outfit, you know, with the rings around the, the shoulders and, you know, the collar and, you know, the, the side, you know, the, I'm not sure what you call that style of jacket, but like a Captain Marvel style jacket that buttons up the side and all that. I really yeah. like that. It's, it's very, very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the opening splash in this as they're flying over the uh, the fairgrounds and the and the trilon. Every every time we get a really nice aerial shot of this, I just I like it every time we see it. Um, 
But yeah, GL has uh, he says something here. Yeah, his op- the opening line of the book was like, "Whoa, you got some serious dark humor going on here." It says, uh, <laughs> "Almost GL got says, you." <laughs> well, I mean, even before that, he says, uh, "Well, here we are, ladies and uh, lady and gentlemen." He says, "Our little home away from homicide," and I'm like, "What?" <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um. Again, with GL being just weird in this issue, you know, page three, that next to last panel where he says, uh, we don't need him. <laughs> What's that all about? What did, what did you don't like him? Uh, Apparently. It's, yeah, it's not even really explained. It's just simply we don't need him. I'm like, OK, um, I'm the only blonde guy that can be out around here. Damn it. I Johnny guess. Quick is too much. When you add Johnny Law, we have officially too many blonde people. They're going to think we're Aryans and racists. You don't want that, do you, Liberty Bell? <laughs> well, I need a panel, nap. The panel before that one, I uh, I just made a note how much I liked it, but then while we were uh, flipping through the issue, it suddenly hit me why I like this panel so much. That looks very John Byrne right there, that shot of Liberty Bell. I really like that. It, it's very diamond. But the way it's inked and everything, it, it almost looks like a Byrne, uh, you know, like a Byrne female figure. Mm-hmm. I really like that. Um, One of the three that he does. <laughs> stop it. Am I wrong? No. Well, I don't know. I don't know. You know... I, I, I kind of vacillate on that because every time I think, yeah, that's a good point. He, you're pretty much right. And then I'll go back and I'll read some of his older stuff. And it's like, no, he has a wide range. He just doesn't always use it. But, you know that I am a fan of John Byrne and that I'm not a Byrne hater and that I'm not, you know, <laughs> right, going to sit here and unnecessarily make fun of the man. So take take my comment like that and not like... All right. You had your you had your knee jerk reaction, is what I'm saying. No, no, I no, I understand that. I'm just saying that. No, I mean because I, I think you make a valid point because I, I often cite the fact that not only does he seem to use the same stock figures over and over again, he also uses a lot of the same stock. Yeah, I guess you could almost call it like stock footage in some of his mm-hmm. fights. He's a big fan of doing the the sideways panel of somebody being punched and flying in a, at a certain angle, and you see it in almost every fight he's ever drawn. Um, that and and Superman, Wonder Man, and Heracles all kind of look alike, right? So, yeah. Well, I see. I'll agree much more about the male figures, yeah, uh, than I will the females. I, I think he does try. To make his female figures, you know, he tries to differentiate them one to another. But when it comes to the male figures, yeah, a lot of times I'll look at uh, especially some of his older stuff and you'd very easily see the same guy wearing, you know, Superman's outfit, Wonder Man's outfit, you know, anybody's outfit. So, yeah, I I will agree when it comes to the guys. Um Page four. I'm sorry, I didn't like this part. I really liked the part with uh, with Steel. I, I I feel for the guy. I, I feel badly for him. Is it a little overly dramatic? Yeah, but still, I mean, you know, yeah, he's he's having a bad day. It's a point where we're going to disagree on. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, page six. Fate catching the plane. Just awesome. I like that part. Da-da-da. Exactly. Um, during Fate's origin, maybe I just never caught this before or something. I don't. I don't know. But I caught it this time, and I was just like, "Huh?" Where he says here, 
Um, he zaps Naboo at one point. He says, uh, I learned well, and one day as a test, even turned my newfound powers on Naboo himself. Oh, so I guess he did do that. He says, amazingly, he split apart instantly to reveal that at his core, he was an energy being, which uh, half a million years before had been born on the planet Cilia as blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, huh? I don't remember any of that. It's almost as bad as, like, you know, he's, he, the, the immortals were from the planet Zeist. <laughs> and they were oh, imprisoned on Earth. Yeah. Yes, Christ, I hated that. <laughs> well, also, I guess my bigger point, too, about the planet Cilia was, I, I should have read further, it says here, uh, born on the planet Cilia as she swung in her orbit past an infant Earth. And I was like, again, Huh? I mean, does this tie into that? There's that crazy theory of what is it like the ninth planet or tenth planet? It would have been theory. the tenth planet at the yeah. time. You know the yeah. one I'm talking about? Yeah, the one, the, the planet that that was between Mars and Jupiter that somehow was destroyed and made a. That's where the asteroid belt came no, it's, from. It's even another one. There's another one beyond that where there's this planet that supposedly circles through our solar system every, like, so many, I don't know, I don't know if it's hundreds of years, thousands of years, something. That's no, not, I've never heard of this. Yeah, it's, like, not part of our solar system at all. But, it, it, you know, much like Halley's Comet, every so many years, it swings through our system. And again, I mean, I'm not saying I lend any credibility. I'm just saying that I've heard this story before, and I'm wondering, is that what they're hinting at here? So I, I don't know. I Honestly, it seems to me I have read the origin story of Dr. Fate a million friggin' times, and I really don't remember this angle before. About, I mean, I knew he was a lord of order. But I don't remember this whole thing about him being from some other planet and shit. I don't remember that. It might be from like the Golden Age version yeah. of the uh, of, of the origin, which I have never read. So yeah, that could be. Yeah, I might. I might be. Con- I do that a lot, actually. I'm much more familiar with the post-crisis origins and histories of most of these characters, so I might be projecting that stuff backwards to a you know to an earlier version where they had goofier origin stories or something. I don't know. Uh, let's see. The whole thing with Naboo taking over Kent Nelson. It, it, did that? When did that start? It seems to me that that start- was that in the backups that Martin yeah. Tasco wrote. I, see, that's what I was kind of. It was tickling my brain that that might have been. I don't remember who the writer was, but I remember it had really nice Keith Giffen art when Keith Giffen was really starting to branch out and do that very. Yeah, that was, that was the Pasco stuff. stuff. Yeah, I think that might have been where that first came up. I don't know. I hope somebody writes. I hope somebody else knows more about that and writes in and tells us that you know did that start here? Is that actually carried over from Golden Age, or is that something that you know was originated in that Keith Giffen stuff that maybe Roy Thomas was taking and adapting, you know, and retrofitting into this to explain you know the whole half helmet thing? That's actually what I suspect is, is the case here. Um, oh crap, I meant to look this up before we got started and I totally forgot to do it. But there's something here, um, page 18, I don't know if I'll be able to find it. Oh, okay, here it is. It's the last panel, the last word bubble. They knock out Will Everett. And uh, and then the, the hoods are trying to decide what to do with him. And the one guy says, uh, we take him to the dame that hired us. What's that name she gave us again? And the one guy says, Ultra. And he says, yeah, let her decide whether this burrhead 
winds up uh, with lead shoes or not. What the hell is a burr head? I've never heard that. It, before. It's it, it it's kind of a. I mean, is it a racial thing? I think it's a racial thing. Okay. I mean, I consider myself fairly well versed on racial slurs. I lived in Georgia for thirteen before. years. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard them all. Yeah, exactly. I've never heard that one before. Um. Beyond the letter from Gardner Fox, which I, I didn't know if you wanted to get into or not, my my biggest note for this one, and this one is where I have to tread very carefully because I don't want to be taken the wrong way. But, okay, this sort of thing has always bothered me in comics for a long, long time, and it really seems to me like it sticks out like a sore thumb in this issue simply for the fact that this is a story that takes place in 1942. All right, so you've got Dr. Fate and the Atom, two white dudes, come barging into Dr. Fate's house. They find his wife beat up and knocked, you know, well, not knocked out, but she's been, she's been injured and she's on the floor. They race downstairs and they find the intruder is a black guy. No mention of this whatsoever. No, there's no reaction to the fact that he's a black guy in the story. Now, I'm not sure how I feel about that, because on the one hand, it's like, you know, I kind of like that these guys are of a, of a higher moral uh, fortitude to where evidently that, you know, skin color doesn't bother them at all. There's no racial thing. You know, on the one hand, I really like that. But on the other hand, I'm like, is it realistic? And I can't decide. You know what I mean? I mean, the last thing I want to do is pick up the, the newspaper tomorrow and see the headline, you know, podcaster calls for more racism in comic books. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> you know? But I, I, I'm, I'm asking a serious question here. Is it realistic that in 1942, a guy would, would, would you know, come in his front door, find his wife's been beat up, find a black guy in his house, and not react uh, racially? You know what I mean? Not 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 even comment on the fact that, you know, that there's a black man in his house. Um, I mean, am I reading more into this than, than I should be? Am I overthinking you, this or, you, or is this have, a legitimate thing? You know what I mean? You have a point, And if it was anybody else but Kent Nelson, I would completely agree with you. OK. But Kent Nelson spent most of his life hanging out with a old crusty in Egypt. Yeah. In Egypt. Yeah. So. Yeah, he might not think in those terms because he wasn't raised during his truly formative years to probably think in those terms. Okay, there were enough racial epithets in this issue, though, that I think that would have been pushing it a little more. Because that, yeah, that's a not good only. Theory. And I do apologize if we have any African American listeners out there. I'm using these words simply in the context of the comic that it was written in. I am not endorsing them in any way. Burrhead is a racial epithet for a black person. As is Sambo, which we also get yeah, in this yeah. issue. So that might have been the bridge too far for Roy Thomas as a writer. Like, I've already done these two things, and that's kind of pushing it. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. The last thing I, I would call <laughs> or expect is that, you know, Dr. Fate, of all people, of all characters, would walk in and use the N-word. That's not what I'm saying at all. But just the simple fact that they didn't say something as simple as, He's a black man. You know, it just seems a little odd to me. I, I, I don't, I, you know, again, maybe I should just let it go. And, you and know, we cause... got the Adam, too, who was raised in New York City, or it seemed to be. Right. So 
here's where I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I would expect it more from a southern character of this time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll totally buy that. Because they called it institutional racism for a reason. Right, and is, yeah. And that is not saying that everybody who felt that way was an evil, evil, you know, dark-souled human being. But because I, I, I think the real tragedy of that type of racism is that little kids are brought up in it and, and say those words, and it's kind of sad. Right. Because they're not being given a chance to decide on their own. They're right. being taught that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I've discussed this in past on, uh, in the past on other podcasts, especially when we were discussing world of Smallville over it from crisis to crisis. It's like, you know, <laughs> Paul was talking about Smallville. It's like, it was a cleaner time, a simpler time. And I added where institutional racism was the norm. I mean, it, it's the thing when people look back on these time periods as like this great, you know, thing that we need to get back to, they kind of forget the darker bits. Oh, and yeah, that, absolutely. And, and that absolutely. would be one of them. So if the Adam had been raised in Atlanta, I would have expected that reaction. But we've got the Adam, who's a city boy, uh, who might, you know, have seen racism in his time. But I, I don't I'm not saying that New, that New Yorkers can't be racist because, duh, Um but it's just, especially Kent Nelson, having not been really grown up in the United States, it probably never even occurred to him. Right. And the Adam seems to have nothing but respect for Will Everett. So, for me, that means that the Adam, for his, you know, as most superheroes are, which is kind of what I like about Young All-Stars, because a couple of the heroes are kind of like, wow, you're... Wow, okay. You really feel that way? (laughs) You go for that. Right. Um, But the Adam probably doesn't, it probably sees him as a black man, obviously, because I'm not one of those people that's like, I don't see you as a black man. No, you see people for what, you know, for who they are. And who they are, and the color of their skin has to do with who they are. But to me, the Adam seems to be the type of guy that's a little more progressive for his time period and probably wouldn't assume that off the bat. But you have a very good... Having said all that, you have a very good point because I kind of thought it in the back of my head, too. I mean, I'm sorry, 1942, woman's knocked out on the floor, black man sitting there with some of your shit. I mean, come on. <laughs> exactly. See, that's that's exactly... that's That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Because... You know, while I try very, very hard not to project future things, you know, future storylines and future knowledge back to these stories, one thing that definitely occurred to me was the really excellent story um, from not too many years ago. You know, I'm pretty sure it was during the Jeff Johns run where some of the JSAers went back in time. And one of the ones that went back in time and had a very difficult go of it was the modern version of Mr. Terrific, who went yeah. back to try to meet um, the old Mr. Terrific. Now, the original Mr. Terrific was a white guy. The modern Mr. Terrific was a black man. And there was a great moment in that where he tried to board a train. And the conductor came over to him and sen- essentially was like, hey, boy, what do you think you're doing? Your people go back there and sent him back to, like, you know, basically a cattle car full of black people. 
and it was that sort of thing that occurred to me while I was reading this story yeah. that while it's ugly and, and, and horrible to think about. And we are in no that, way endorsing it. Oh, yeah, exactly. But that is this same exact era. That's the year that Mr. Terrific went back to, or, you know, the the, the general era. So, you know, again, I don't know exactly what I'm calling for. I'm definitely not calling for, you know, I want more no, racism you're, you're, and all sorts. You're making a point. You're but, making yeah. a yeah, you're you're not calling for anything. You're just right. asking what what I believe is a somewhat legitimate question, and I, and I think that conductor is very lucky that he didn't get too rough with Mister Terrific because Michael Holt would have fucking crippled him. Oh yeah, in like yeah. a heartbeat. <laughs> but that that's actually it's funny that I really enjoyed that story and I really liked that. But that was the moment that I took away from that book was like, wow, you know, they really nailed a moment of time that I, you know, it, it wouldn't have, if I had been writing that story, it wouldn't have occurred to me to do that scene. Yeah. And I read it and it was like, that was, uh, it was a slug in the gut. It was like, yeah, that's right. You know, this was a time when, you know, there were separate water fountains, separate bathrooms, you know, and, and very much, like you say, institutional racism hadn't even occurred to me. And that to me was the most powerful moment of that in- entire storyline that here was, what is Michael Hall like the third smartest human being in the yeah. planet in the DC universe? And here he is treated like, you know, a second class citizen. And it was like, wow, that that sends a powerful message in a subtle way. And I really liked that. I thought that was a very great moment of, of a great series, you know, of a great storyline. Um, spinning this a little bit more positively, um, you know, you had mentioned about. You know, people looking back at the good old days kind of thing, you know, and forgetting, you know, some of the things that weren't so good about the good old days. Uh, I I would recommend if you haven't ever read it, um, read. uh, There's a book by Walter Lord um, called The Night Lives On. It's a sequel to uh, A Night to Remember about the sinking of the Titanic. And it's one of the chapters, I want to say it may be the very first chapter, which is basically investigating what is our fascination? What is the collective you know, you know, of all the people in the world, what is our collective fascination with the Titanic? What is the mystique in everything that, that makes this thing latch onto us and not let go? And one of the things he postulates is this sense of the good old days, the way things used to be and Mm -hmm. the world that was, and he makes an excellent point and cites a lot of examples for busting that myth of the good old days and pointing out, that while a lot of people want to look back on an era like, say, the Gilded Age and say, wow, you know, that that was like the golden age of, of civilization, he cites many examples showing, you know, gross social injustice and everything else that was going on at the time and really makes a case for, you know, there never really has been any era that was the good old days. There, every era, yeah. you know, had its problems and, and things that were going on. And uh, that always stuck with me. I always really liked that that chapter of that book. Um, oh, I'm and, sorry, and, and it's absolutely right too. I mean, right? Yeah. I, I think when when people talk about the good old days, they're talking about more of a frame of mind than an actual reality. Right. You right. Know, uh, you know, there's a country song. That's like if if the world had a front porch like we did back then. It's just yeah. like that's eh, a lovely theory. 
but right. it doesn't quite hold up. I mean, I I think a lot when when I'm at work and it's just crappy. I think back to it's like, man, I just remember when I was a teenager and I didn't have to put up with that stuff. But then I start really thinking about it. Oh, like like when you were completely miserable all the time because you couldn't get a date. Right. And, uh, you know, you, you were constantly struggling for money and you had problems at school and all that stuff. Is is that what you want to go back to? Because, yeah, you, you, get, you had free room and board, but you don't have any of the freedom you have right now. Dumbass. So... I remember my my parents used to pine for, you know, the old days and stuff. And I remember one time getting into a discussion with them of exactly what, you know, what days were they pining for exactly? And it was, you know, like the late 60s, you know, early. So like when they were first fell in love, I first came along. You know, when they were first getting started, I'm thinking, all right, as somebody who's also gone through that whole process, those are some of the most turbulent times of your entire life. Not to mention the fact the year I was born, 1968, I recommend to folks go watch the episode entitled 1968 of the uh, From the Earth to the Moon series. Yeah. 1968 was the most turbulent year of the entire 20th century. I mean, a lot of shit went down that year. You know, there's Martin a, Luther a, King was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy, Kennedy was assassinated. Race riots. I mean, just it was a horrible year for the human race that year, you know? There was a really good two-hour special on the History Channel hosted by Tom Brokaw about 1968 as well. That's right. Yeah, I meant to really watch that. Good. Missed it. Yeah, I heard that that was really good, you know? But I think it's ironic also, though, as that episode that I recommended points out that, you know, we also had, you know, up to that point, our greatest triumph as a species at the end of that very year as well. So I think true. Yeah, that was nice. But uh, getting back a little bit more Merry on Christmas topic to here. everybody on the good earth and the good earth. Yeah. Everybody on the bad earth. Fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> They never add that. I, every time I hear that, I'm like, that's wonderful. And then I have that thought. <laughs> you know, I was also thinking, um, walking away from this issue, which, again, I love this issue. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a really solid, solid issue. And I, and I had a thought, you know, sitting here as I, as I look at the cover to this issue and how dynamic and awesome Amazing Man is. And honestly, I'm serious, is one of my favorite characters to come out of this series you know, I'm reminded of the beginning of uh, of Chasing Amy. You know, why do we not hear Amazing Man offered up when people bring up that old argument about there not being any decent black characters in comics? You know, positive black role models. Because, you know, maybe I'm spoiling ahead a little bit. You know, Amazing Man becomes a hero. And yes, he becomes he one of the better heroes of the series. I mm -hmm. really like him. And then, you know, that legacy, he's also a legacy character because that carries forward to, uh, what is, was it his grandson in Extreme Justice? I believe it was his grandson. And he was a great character, too. I really liked him a lot in that series. He was one of my favorite characters of that series. So, you know, there are good characters out there, you know, and, and it's a shame that, uh, and I, you know, well, I'm guilty of it myself. I kind of forgot about him, to be honest. But now that he's coming back, I'm like, oh, yeah, remember that I love this guy. Let, let, let's be fair. Extreme Justice was a good team. Mm -hmm. I would not say it was a good series. 
I don't know. I would say I enjoyed it. I, I think it had it, it got off to a really slow start once they started dealing with the whole monarch thing. I really yeah. got into it, but that got that is an extremely nineties 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 book, and I, that is saying is somebody who loves the nineties. Well, see, I was going to say that, and and I was worried how you might take it, but yeah, I think that is the problem with that book. Is I think. I don't know so much about the writing, but to me, the thing that hurt that book and ended up ending that book was the art. The art is atrocious in that book, and it was not helped at all by the fact of not only did they horribly maim um, Booster Gold, but then when he was on the men, they saddled him with that just ridiculous outfit that he had, which, again, coupled with the horrible 90s art – just you, you just looked at the covers and you looked at the first couple of pages. Holy and, uh, shit! What's that? I, I'm I, I hate to interrupt you, sir, but we have late breaking fucking news. Uh-oh. Coming out. No way. Showcase presents All Star Squadron Volume One. Released on uh, April 24th, uh, 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 2012. Fuck yes. Now is this is this really... Oh, there's a cover and everything. So this... Oh, that's an ugly cover. Well, is, yeah. Is this really going to happen, you think? Oh, yeah, there's... 528 pages. Wow. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, this I is I happen awesome. to be looking at my email. Because I tend to do like three things at once while I podcast. And this was given, this was linked to my wall by Chris Johnson. Thank you, Chris. Um, hell yes. It is about time. No shit. Wow. We are speechless. What the hell is this? this? There's a thing down here at the bottom. Customers who bought this item also bought. And the last one on the right, Superman, The Secrets of the Forces, uh, Fortress of Solitude. But the cover that's on this is from that oversized book, Superman and His Amazing Fortress of Solitude. What the hell is this book? Now i got to check that out. <laughs> that's okay. I can cut all this part out. But uh... but no, this is awesome. You should... Uh, no, I would totally... No, I'm leaving in the right. All-Star Squadron part. I'm just... Yeah. Now, I'm wondering what issues exactly this reprints, because it, 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 under the credits it lists, Roy Thomas author Rich Buckler, illustrator, but... It's Buckler? 528 pages. Well, so I'm going to assume there's probably at least 20 issues in there. Plus Wow. Well, the price they've got listed so far, the, the Amazon price, thirteen fifty nine, and it's eligible for free shipping on orders over twenty five bucks. We'll definitely you need to go to, to the Two a, True Freaks site, folks. Yep, Two True Freaks dot lips and dot com, and pre order the shit out of this book. Yep, if you are a fan of this show, and we get emails, when are they gonna? When are they gonna reprint it? When are they gonna reprint it? I know it's black and white. I know a lot of people don't like that. But uh, hey, this is Rich Buckler we're talking about, though, so yeah. it's going to look really, oh, really it's gonna look good. Gorgeous, and it's Jerry Ordway inking. Oh man, when they get to these issues in that in the black and white, those are going to look gorgeous. <laughs> Holy crap! Wow, I just derailed the podcast, but. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, bring it back around. What else have we got for this one? Uh, you were in the middle of making a point, which is why I feel so bad. But, I don't uh, remember what the hell I was talking about. Oh, just just about. I, I think I was just wrapping up about this whole thing with uh, you know. I, I would like to no. I know I know what it was. It was about the the extreme justice. Yeah, I, I was pretty much. Done. I mean, it, it comes down to. Regrettably, I think it's one of those forgotten series that that people can easily dismiss because all they have to do is look at the ugly covers or the ugly interior art and go, "Well, this isn't worth checking out." Yeah, it actually is. It was actually a really good series. It's just it's a shame that yeah, it is. It's very '90s in the art, but I enjoyed the stories and everything in that, and I liked where it was going. And it's also, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's a series that's somewhat notable for bringing uh, Zan and Jaina into the mainstream yes, it DCU was. for a while. So, yeah. I enjoyed that series. I really did. I hated what they did with Booster, but eventually, uh, you know, they kind of redeemed themselves with that storyline as well. But, yeah, Booster Gold went through hell in that series. All righty. Uh, do we want to look through the ads? Oh, yeah, I forgot about I don't know. That. I always forget about the ad part. Well, we got the Tron ad again. Yeah, this time on the inside front cover. And Lock and Chase is on the back cover, so they got kind of lazy. <laughs> uh, Predator, the high-tech BMX accessories. I was never into the BMX thing. Nah. Um, I'm not yeah, we get a lot of the same uh, ads. Yeah. Oh, there is, uh, on the letters page, though, there is that... Um, those couple of shots of tarantula you were talking about. Oh yes, and we and and Sergeant Rock actually got vehicles from Remco, so that's kind of cool. <laughs> the the meanwhile column in this though is really cool because it takes us through Dick Giordano's day, and yeah. I always liked these. It's like January twenty eighth, Stratford, Connecticut, four a.m. Soft strains of quiet music filter through my sleep clotted brain and nudge me awake. Rock's okay, but not to wake up to. Sh- uh, strut off my clock radio, or shut off my clock radio, and pad downstairs to brew my morning tea. No day can start without my morning tea. <laughs> and then he just goes through him drawing, going to work, talking to a bunch of people. We get hints on upcoming projects through the whole thing. Uh, yeah. I love. This is one of my favorite ones. Yeah, day in the life. I, I do like this one. I like uh, the one he tells. Uh, it must be later on after this of where he was on a train ride, and somebody was asking him, you know, so what do you do for a living? And he was talking about working on the Batman books, and the guy was like, "They still make those, you know." And so it, it got into a whole article about you know the the Joe average perception of of comics and comics characters. I really liked that one. I thought that one was interesting. So, if we get to if we get that one in upcoming issues, I'll I'll, I'll point that one out more. But yeah, there I don't see much for ads in this one, honestly. Yeah, I think that's about. I think we've covered everything else that's in there. We go on to uh, elsewhere in the DC multiverse. Yes, sir. You know any any cover that has Hitler holding uh, <laughs> the Legion of Superheroes is kind of awesome. I like that one. Who is the cover? Oh, Ed Hannigan. Okay, I didn't recognize the artist on that one. The Legion confronts three wor- the three worst villains in history. Yep. Huh. Pretty cool. 
Yeah, I don't have that. Though I, 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 who are the three worst villains in history? We've got is that Pan? I, I'm assuming Nero or Caesar. Yeah, I guess Caesar. Probably and then Caesar. who's the guy with the Tommy gun? Is that like Al Capone or something? Probably somebody. I'm sorry, Hitler beats both of those guys. Yeah, in a douchebag contest, Hitler trumps everybody. That is a great best of DC cover with Superman and ghosts. I have that. Yeah. One. Yeah. I, I do too. Yeah. Um, like, Who is the artist on that? Oh, Ed Hannigan again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Cause Superman's eyes are all darkened out. I always thought that was creepy. Another great Blackhawk cover. Yep. He's going, Hey, how you doing? <laughs> Look at my swastikas. See how <laughs> big they are. I, I love- like, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I like the cover on uh, DC Comics Presents was, number 59 with Superman and the Legion of Substitute Heroes. He's just face-palming and going, Oh, I, Christ. <laughs> I like the Legion of Substitute Heroes, though. Yes. I always get a kick How out of those not? guys. Stone Boy. Stone Boy. And, 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 and Polar Boy was leading the, the, the Legion at one point. So. Yep. <sighs> It's a great Firestorm cover. I do not remember this issue at all. I mean, I, I know I have it because I have a complete run, but I don't. I don't. Even, who is this villain? I don't even recognize that guy. Is that Overthrow? Oh, yeah. it might be. Yeah. No, it's Enforcer. Uh, I don't remember him. Yeah. yeah cover though. I do like that. Yeah, Overthrow was the uh, the guy that played that really weird sport. That fought Blue Beetle, that Highlight, I think it's called. Highlight, yeah, it's big here in Florida. Really? Or at least when I was a kid, it used to be. I know there are still Highlight courts around, so I guess it's still a big deal. I really like that Wonder Woman cover. I was trying to decide whether I like that one or not. I, I, it's okay. I like the colors in it and everything. It's still a little bit wonky. I, Gil Kane's women are, are often kind of odd to me, but yeah, it's not bad. Another great Batman cover by Ed Hannigan with him fighting Man-Bat. Man-Bat, yeah, and it's Jason Todd that he's dropping to the street right there. The blonde-headed Still a redhead, or blonde. Blonde, a red, whatever. Um, I cannot remember the details very well of this uh, DC Comics Presents annual number two story, but I remember being very excited when it came out. Because it had Superwoman. Uh, it has Superwoman, but, you know, uh, spoiler alert, the, the name of this story was The Last Secret Identity, and it was where um, this character, Kirsten Wells, comes back through time. She was a, a time-traveling, like, uh, historian, and she yeah. comes back to learn who was Superwoman. And it turns out at the end of the story, she herself was Superwoman, and she didn't even know it. Yeah, she and, was uh, back in the fourth annual. yeah. And I always liked Kirsten Wells because she was the character and, and played a very major role in the book um, Superman Miracle Monday, which is one of my favorite Superman stories. I'm having trouble getting through it. Really? Yeah. I um, Everything in Smallville I like. It's just when we get to like the modern day stuff, for some reason I, I'm hitting a wall. So I'll try again at some point. Did you get to the part in Smallville where Superboy makes friends with, um, um, oh crap, Ray Bradbury? Did you get to that part? No, not yet. That is my favorite part of the book, and that was years and years and years before my my 
Well, I, if I tell you what happens, I'll, I'll spoil the whole thing, so okay. I won't say. But it's great because uh, Superman walks into, I think it's a casino. A in yeah, well, yeah, it essentially is. It's like Superman walks into a bar, and he's there to see um, Max Maven, this nightclub performer. And the the guy, like the bouncer at the bar, won't let him in. He doesn't believe that he's really Superman. And so uh, Superman spots a friend in the crowd. And I think this is how it's written. The scene is written something like Superman spots a, a friend at a, a, you know sitting at the bar. And he says, hey, Ray, can you come here and vouch for me? And uh, the guy walks over. And it's Ray Bradbury, the author, walks over and vouches for Superman. And then at some point, the book goes into how the hell does Superman know Ray Bradbury? And it turns out that there's a connection there tied to something that's actually really true about Ray Bradbury and a certain like lifetime past that he had and where he takes Superboy. And it's great. That that right there was one of the things that won me over about that book, and that was... He was also a client of Julia Schwartz. Oh, really? When Julia, yeah, when Julia Schwartz was an agent for science fiction writers, so Ray Bradbury was one of his clients. Huh, I did not know that. If I'm right, it was his first client. I could be wrong about that. I like the cover to uh, this issue of The Flash as well. Yes. I'm, uh, I like, I, I like I, evil versions of the heroes. Oh, well. yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've i often said that uh, while I do consider myself a Carmine Infantino fan, that I was never really big on his Flash stuff, but this is a rare exception. I really like that cover. That's cool. With Flash and the anti-Flash or reverse Flash racing towards each other. That's cool. Speaking of great covers, I've always liked this cover to New Teen Titans number 33. Yeah, who killed Trident? Trit- yes. Oh, man, that was an awesome. Um, somebody is about to punch the ever-loving shit out of Swamp Thing. Yeah, that's a shit story, dude. I remember you guys talking about it. Yeah, you got the dude that's made out of diamonds, but he wears pants. It's just, it's God, it was awful. Now, okay, I really want to know, I want your honest opinion of the covers of both Superman and Action Comics this month, both drawn by Gil Kane. I like the uh, Superman cover a lot. My only problem with the Action cover is Brainiac looks really small, like, I'm going to get you, Superman! (laughs) It's the last thing I ever do. (laughs) Oh, I'm almost doing Skeletor! From the He-Man cartoon, He-Man! Yeah, I'm not as crazy about Blue the Jack action. And Eddie one. and I need to team up. <laughs> I'm not as crazy about the action one, but I do like that Superman cover, largely for sentimental reasons. I I, I remember buying this on vacation one year when we went to Pennsylvania. I remember being bored a lot of the time when I was in Pennsylvania because there just wasn't much to do where my aunt lived. So I would stock up on comics every chance where, I got to make it somewhere. Where did your sold. aunt live in PA? Um. It was Beaver something. Beaver. It was either Beaver Town or Beaver Falls. I think it was Beaver Town. There was so much beaver in that. There was town. so much beaver. I can't remember anymore. But no, I actually have to tell you about my my beaver story for Pennsylvania sometime. Brave and the Bold two hundred. Awesome. I yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I must. Uh, you know the covers. All right. I guess I was never a fan. You know. I know this is one that you had said we need to cover at some point. I'm actually curious to reread this issue because I remember not liking this story. 
I don't know why. I can't remember why now I didn't like it, but I remember reading it and being disappointed that that was the final issue of uh, of Brave and the Bold because I remember feeling like it went out with a whimper instead of a bang. But like I say, I, that was years ago, and I have only the vaguest of recollections. So this uh, this one for Daring New Adventures of Supergirl, this is the one I was thinking of. Mm-hmm. Uh, mentioned the uh, the Doom Patrol. I knew I had an issue where she teamed up with them. I didn't have the previous issue, but I did have this one. I always liked the cover. I always thought Reactron looked really cool. I really like that Green Lantern cover. Yeah. That's a Who great that? shot of G. That's Kane. Gil Kane. Yeah. Yeah, I do like that. Well, G- Gil Kane was the original GL artist, wasn't he? Yes, he was. I mean, for Hal Jordan. Yes. Yeah. You know, that, that cover of I, Vampire, it looks like he just pinched her ass and is running away. <laughs> I'm out of here. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> Sorry, lady. I like this uh, this Keith Giffen cover to uh, Legion 301. Yes. It's very retro. It's, that's really cool. Very reminiscent of it. Uh, th- that's based on a Superboy cover. Yep. So... We've got uh, we've got the awesome All Star Squadron one. the The Detective Comics cover is really cool. Yeah, that's uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do like that one. Who's he fighting in that one? Who's the bad guy in that one? Uh, I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, okay. So I will be covering that though on Bailey's Batman Podcast. Bailey's Batman Podcast found at Bailey's Batman Podcast dot com. <laughs> No beavers. I didn't care. For, oh, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> no beavers. No beavers. I don't want to listen to it if it doesn't have any beavers. <laughs> it's the only Batman podcast on the net full of a JJ. Yay! Yay! <laughs> um, I don't care for the cover to Jonah Hex. Uh, I don't either. That sucks. Yeah, I don't care for the cover to... Uh, to Superboy, although I, Superboy himself using his heat vision on that cover is awesome. Everything else on there is kind of suck, but I do yeah, like I the shot of Superboy himself. And uh, I started to say I didn't like this cover, but I'm going to change my mind. I do like this cover to World's Finest because you got Batman getting kicked in the head while. Sh- <laughs> <laughs> Superman's listening to one of our longer episodes going <laughs> <laughs> he's listening to last week's episode and going Jesus Christ would these guys just shut up <laughs> I will turn this world back around if you guys don't shut up <laughs> don't make me turn this planet around I can do it I've got evidence um, I have never you read know, Ronin, and I have no interest to ever read Ronin. <laughs> read Ronin, Ren Ronin. Let Frank, Frank Miller come over. You know, I <laughs> I often wonder if the listeners go to this page and follow along with us on, on this. I'm really curious about that, because if they don't, I'm wondering what do you guys get out of this segment? I mean, do you know what cover? <laughs> you know what I mean? Seriously. I mean, because this is a very visual segment of the show. So I'm really curious what if if you're not following along at home or, or whatever. And I imagine, you know, I, I imagine a lot of folks when they listen to the, you know, any podcast are probably doing it much like I do, you know, like on the drive to and from work or you know, on your break at work or whatever. So 
I'm just wondering, does does this segment work for you <laughs> being as visual as it is? Anyway, you what do you say, Mike? Have we uh have we got an episode in the can or did we want to cover some letters? What do you think? Um let's let let's leave it for next week. Okay. Just because we ran kinda long again. Oh simply yeah. Simply because of uh the late breaking announcement. But depending on how many issues are in that uh are in that All-Star Showcase Presents, um, this issue may very well be reprinted in it. Yeah. That's a good, yeah, it's a good point. It would be very nice if we're able to finally stop (laughs) stop ending the show on that. that Well, at least when we cover Infinity Incorporated, we got ten episodes where it's going to be, this has been reprinted here, so. Right. Yeah. That will be nice. That's very true. You know what DC needs to do next, though? What's that? This this will put a put us out on a positive note. Marvel has been putting out omnibuses of like Acts of Vengeance and Atlantis Attacks and all of like the crossover issues that go along with their events. Mm-hmm. I think DC needs to put out one a Monitor omnibus with all of his early appearances, and then follow that up with a oversized crisis crossover omnibus as well. I like that idea. I really like that idea. As somebody who spent literally years tracking all that stuff down, because, you know, most of those issues, honestly, are 50 cent fodder. I mean, a lot of them you can get out of cheapy bins, but there's just as many that are a complete nightmare to try to find because the crisis, or, or at least you know the the pre-crisis, the the monitor appearances. I mean, they were all over the board. It wasn't mm-hmm. just the titles you would think, like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. I mean, you know, you had GI Combat and Jonah Hex, and you know, pretty much every book that they were publishing at that time, no matter what the genre, had at least one pre-crisis monitor appearances. Some of them. You know, just by the nature of the game, some of them are a lot more hard and, and expensive to find than others. So, yeah, that would be awesome if they would just, you know, make it easy, you know, for the anal retentive, uh, you know, completist to, to get them all in one convenient package. That would be great. Or at least in the introduction of, like, the crossover one, have, like, all of the pages together of the various yeah. people experiencing the monitor with... Uh... Yeah. Right. <sighs> that was so awesome to find out. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www. Dot two true freaks dot dot com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. 
Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytude.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to... Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. We will always remember how they died for liberty. Let's remember Pearl Harbor and go on to victory.